Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with legendary broadcaster and the current voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, John Rooney. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a legendary MLB broadcaster. He's the current voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, ladies and gentlemen, John Rooney. John, thanks for coming on the program. Well, Brett, a pleasure to be with you, and at this time of year, uh, this is the best time to talk baseball of any. We're coming down on the wire. We got uh, about a month left. About a month left. What do you think? What do you think about that new format? Do you like it? I personally like it. The si- the six teams from each league. I like it a lot because it has really given us September like baseball in the month of August. Yeah, everybody's trying to jockey for for a position, and they're trying to get things set up where they can be uh, very good down the road. And uh, the trade deadline. I like that setup the way that worked out because I, I think it uh, really helps some teams and some others uh, who uh, happen to do a lot of trading and dealing. I think they're still trying to get their teams together. Yeah. And I, you know, I, th- I think back and <clears throat> for me, I think I'm kind of a purist and I like as little change as possible to our game. But as I get a little bit older, you know, I, I, the fan side of me comes out a little bit, you know, originally I was, no, you know, it, more playoff teams, it cheapens uh, the actual event. Like, then anybody can go to the playoffs. But as a fan now, sitting there, I think, wow, this this includes probably four to five more cities for the entire month of September, whereas in the past, Pat, it, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, those cities were out of it by when we touch September. So, so the fan side of me and, and maybe age a little bit, John, as I get older, I, I kind of like it. It's just, it, it adds excitement. Well, I think it adds a lot of excitement to it, Brett. And uh, I, I looked at the playoff system in 2020 and, and that brought some excitement at a time where uh, we were trying to figure out a virus, trying to figure out uh, where we were going forward and, and trying to keep the game on the field. I thought baseball did a wonderful job. And these teams did a wonderful job of taking care of their health, taking care of one another. And then it was capped off by a pretty exciting playoff. Uh, the Cardinals won a game out in San Diego, but San Diego came back from a deficit in the second game and then one going away as they used nine different pitchers in the third game to advance. I don't know if it's going to take nine pitchers a game to advance when we get to the postseason or not, but I like the way some of these games have played out from about the middle of August on where it's almost like you you need that win to get into the playoffs, and I think it has put an importance on those games. What makes a good catchphrase? What goes into it? You've got a couple. A good catchphrase. Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess something that just happens to pop up. Uh, uh, people know after we score six that I can smell the coffee brewing because we have a 60-cent drink it on the run at Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> they're happy about that where they can gas up and and get a you know a large soft drink or a coffee the next day but the uh it's a goner home run call uh, my mom and i were coming home from kansas city we lived outside of kansas city and we were going up this big hill near excelsior springs missouri and that's that's now a straight 
uh, road that used to be a big curvy road. And had we been just a couple of seconds earlier, a car just came around the corner and then cut right in front of us. And uh, we would have been goners, as she put it. So that's kind of where I came up with it's a goner for a home run call. I don't use it for every one because I think if you have a couple of home runs an inning, that uh, it's a goner, it's a goner, it's a goner. It gets a little old, but uh, it, it has worked out. And it was kind of fun saying that the other day when Albert Pujols uh, hit number 695. Wow, six ninety five. Five. He's got five to that magic number. I think only. Well, it's Babe and and uh, who is it? It's who's got what who's got seven hundred? No, no. Does Babe have? No, it's Hank Barry. <clears throat> is there only two or is there three? Is Babe three? Babe's three. Uh, Babe's All right. So the closest one is is Albert and uh, and uh, A Rod. A Rod uh, has one ahead of Albert right now. And uh, I think uh, I think Albert will pass a Rod, but but you know how hard it is to hit a home run. <laughs> it's rid- it's ridiculous, it's and I'm watching what Albert's doing right now, and I- I'm kind of in amazement. You know, I played against Albert for a, for a long time, and you know, you you were there, <clears throat> you saw uh, the beginning of Albert's career. You know, starting you, you started with the Cardinals after I think after the 05 season, but I remember right. from two thousand, I believe the two thousand one when he first came up as a rookie. Those first two year, ten years for Albert, about as good a ten years as anyone's ever had in the history of the game, and the fact that it's now uh, twenty one years later, and this this guy's hitting home runs right now like he's like he's twenty one year old Albert. It looks like the Albert that I saw hit the three home runs against the Rangers in a World Series game down in Arlington. The last year he was with the Cardinals or on a Sunday afternoon against the Reds hit three home runs in a game or hit a dramatic uh, home run against Brad Lidge in the postseason in 2005 that uh, continued that series only to have the Astros win it and play the White Sox in the World Series. He looks like the same guy now that he was then. And he's changed his stance a little bit. It's not as straight away and not quite as wide as it used to be, but he has the hands in the right place. And, and he may, be, may have been the only guy to call a shot at Wrigley Field since Babe Ruth back in the 30s when he hit a ball off the wall his first at bat against Drew Smiley. And he hit it in the well at Wrigley Field, a, a line drive, long single. And then he told Stubby Clapp, the first base coach, I need to bring that ball over just a little bit in the left center field. Take it over to the right a little. I can get the ball out of here. Two at-bats later, he did it. He hit the ball where he wanted, and he hit a pitch that was just under his chin. I have no idea how he did that. It's amazing to me what he's pulling off right now, how he's prepared. And when I happened to mention 694, 694 home runs right before he hit 695, I had this strangest feeling something was going to happen. And a split second later, it did uh, you never can tell. He might get the 700 or better. He might. It's it's pretty remarkable uh, watching this last this last month or so. Um, you're born in Richmond. What is John Rooney like as a little kid? Were you an athlete? Oh, uh, I, I I was a pudgy little kid who got interested in baseball when I was about uh, nine years old because every kid on the block was playing and. And uh, I got to play a, a lot of right field because uh, I wasn't wasn't all that good. But I really took a liking to baseball. Uh, we were playing tennis ball in the backyard, 
and I put a swing on one and hit it over the neighbor's fence a couple of houses away, and I thought, that felt pretty good. And, and I really got interested in it, listening to Cardinal games with my dad out in the car because we couldn't really pull in the, the games in the house on a brand-new Philco radio that we had in the house because Kansas City uh, was a closer market to St. Louis. But Dad grew up listening to Terry Moore and Stan Musial and later became a huge fan of Bob Gibson, and so did I for that matter. But uh, I had to like the Kansas City A's, Brett, because my dad liked the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, the A's finished last in 1964, and the Cardinals won it all. And that's when I became a, a big Cardinal fan, too. And Getting to work with the likes of Bill White. I worked with him at CBS Radio on the Game of the Week. And Bob Eucher became a broadcaster out of that. Tim McCarver became a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Mike Shannon was the longtime broadcaster in the Cardinals Hall of Fame. And you had Lou Brock doing some games. And Bob Gibson did some broadcasting. Uh, that's To me, that's the all-broadcaster team from 1964, but I, I grew up listening to the uh, the accomplishments of those guys, and then I got to work with many of them. I worked the talk show with Bob Gibson after some Cardinal games on KMOX. It was back in uh, about 1985, and I, I was scared to death that if I did something wrong, said something wrong, Bob Gibson was going to bite my head off, and, and uh, he might pick up a baseball and throw at me. But I had more fun doing that show, a great sense of humor, uh, a very intelligent guy, just sharp as he could be in answering any question the fans threw his way after the talk show. And it became a very popular program because uh, Bob was absolutely great. Do you remember a time when you were a kid when you thought, I want to be a broadcaster? Well, I was probably about eight years old. And I, I started, uh, as I said, playing uh, Little League around 9 or 10 and, and then uh, played a lot more baseball, uh, Optimus League. I played about 10 miles away where I went to a private school the first eight years before I went to Richmond High School. But I got to know a lot of those guys, and we still keep in very close touch because we won a lot of games. But even at eight, nine years old, and when I graduated from that private school, from uh, the Catholic school in, in uh, Lexington, Missouri, uh, it was in our yearbook that uh, my best friend said, you're going to grow up to be the broadcaster for the Oakland A's. Well, I didn't broadcast the Oakland A's, but I ended up doing CBS Game of the Week, then the Minnesota Twins, the White Sox, and working for the Cardinals now. And, and that's, that's something I wanted to do. I drove people crazy, Brett, by calling games in the backyard and, uh, and, and chatting up people. I was a catcher uh, in amateur ball, so that was my job, chat everybody up. Uh, make them hate me, make make me really obnoxious to the opposing hitters to try to take a little bit of the pressure off our pitchers. But uh, that that's how, kind of how I got started. And I love catching, and uh, I looked up to your dad. He was one of the finest of uh, his era by far, and he was on that Phillies team that beat the Kansas City Royals in 1980 and was in on a play with uh, Pete Rose on a pop-up foul over by the first base dugout. The ball popped out of your dad's mitt, and Rose was there to catch it. Kind of a tough play as he had to run all the way over to the dugout. But that's when I knew I thought the Phillies were going to win that. But as a, as a kid, I wanted to be a baseball broadcaster because I listened to Jack Buck and Harry Carey. Uh, Monty Moore was doing the A's with a fellow named George Bryson. And every now and then I'll bring out the three and two and a big one's due that George Bryson used all the time. Uh, that was a pretty good catchphrase, I thought, for him, if it's the right moment. But uh, I, I just love listening to um, Halsey Hall and Ray Scott and Herb Carneal out of Minnesota. 
and uh, by Sam was doing the Philadelphia Phillies and, and later Harry Callis's great voice uh, boomed all over the country out of Philadelphia on a station that was uh, a clear channel signal and of course KMOX with Harry and Jack uh, listening to Harry you know the Cardinals are coming tra la tra la uh, that that was uh, in 1964 when the Cardinals were able to blow by the Phils and and win the pennant and then beat the Yankees uh, to me that was all magical and and to uh, be able to call these games, you know, the farther away from the dirt, the easier this game looks. But to know what a lot of these guys go through and living and traveling and being around professional teams. Uh, I did four years of minor league baseball, and I know others paid a lot more dues, and they did longer stints in the minor leagues. But being around those players and, and learning what it takes on a day-to-day basis to prepare for one ball game. It's hard enough to win one game, let alone a championship. Uh, really made me appreciate what they do and uh, and how uh, I could call a game and and be uh, sympathetic to uh, to errors. I mean, everybody's going to make errors at some point. It happens, but uh, to be ill prepared or one thing and another, I, I haven't found too many of these players that don't get to the ballpark early and get themselves ready. And uh, I wanted to do the same thing as a broadcaster and do as good a job as they're doing on the field. Well, you brought back you brought back my childhood right there the, with the Bysom call. Uh, I remember Bysom. Obviously, Harry Callis was was that famous call. Uh, you know, kind of the voice of the Phillies for many many years. He was with Richie Ashburn. Uh, that was my childhood. You you talk about Dad and Pete at first. I remember I was at that game, and uh, it's funny to hear Dad talk about it now. You know, and he says. Uh, <clears throat> I guess him and Pete were, were doing an interview together recently uh, back in Philadelphia. They had a reunion and, and they were talking about that play. And uh, dad, dad says, he goes, Pete Rose, my ass. He goes, where the hell was he to catch it initially? That wasn't my ball. And, and it's a good thing yeah, back said, and forth. Bob had to go a long way to try to get yeah. that. And I was at the game too. I was, I was covering the game for uh, Missouri network in Jefferson city. And I'm, I was surprised he even got leather on it. But Pete Rose was over there. He finally came a split second later, and when the ball popped up, popped out, he caught it. And and that's when I thought the Phillies have everything that, going right on that. Yeah, that's destiny right there. Um, yep. You got into radio at an early age, I think high school. Tell me about I that. I was 16. I was 16. I walked into the station, and uh, Ray Smokey Beckwith was the manager, a little station outside of Kansas City, and and I looked at him and I said, I'm going to do sports for you. He was smoking a cigar and actually fell out of his chair laughing. And he picked himself up and he said, okay, there's uh, some AP copy in the room around the corner. There's a studio. Make a five-minute sports cast. If it's any good, I'll run it today. And, uh, and he ran it at 525 that day. And, and I've been in the business now 51 years uh, from that day. And, and uh, it's been a great great run uh, it only took me uh, four and a half hours to make that five minute sportscast though uh, edit 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 uh, I knew a little bit about working a reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder uh, from uh, just hanging around my brother who was always quite interested in in the uh, the uh, components uh, he had a big uh, Ampex reel-to-reel machine and uh, I was lucky I knew that so I could uh, edit a sportscast and and I made it through and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still editing a lot uh, you went to college in Missouri and uh, your first break, and you mentioned it earlier, KMOX, that, that is a big station. And it's, 
I don't know how many different uh, places it covers, but I know it's a lot. But it's, I mean, it's it's the who's who, you know, Buck, Jack and Joe, Bob Costas, uh, Mike Shannon, uh, recent guy we had on the podcast, uh, Greg Amsinger from from MLB Network. Oh, yeah. He was, he, he was a board op there. But the, the list goes on and on. I think Deerdorf was there. Um, right. But that's a big deal. KMOX, you know, growing up in that part of the country, KMOX is a big deal. That's your first big break. Are you thinking you're on your way? Well, I wasn't really on my way. Uh, I went to work there in 1980. I'd done some uh, basketball for University of Missouri for Missouri Network. And Missouri Network lost the rights to Mizzou football and basketball to uh, Jim Bakken, the old place kicker uh, with the football Cardinals, and Greg Marasek, who was in uh, local um, local uh, broadcasting and uh, mostly in the suburban papers. But they started a company called SNI Sports Network and took the rights away for a couple of years. So I was basically out of a job at Missouri Network, and I went to St. Louis on a tryout with uh, what was uh, old KSD radio, and uh, now it's KTRS. Uh, 550 on the dial. And after a month, they were going to offer me a job to stay there. They were doing the, the CBS news format, the news talk format. KMOX was the CBS owned station in town. They did a format with variations of what KSD was doing. And I was offered the job and Mr. Highland called me, what are you doing over there? Uh, why didn't you tell me you needed a job? Uh, I would have brought you over here. Well, I mentioned it to the news director that I got a call from Mr. Highland, and he said, USOB, we had a deal. And I said, well, if that's the way you're talking to me, we don't have a deal. So I, I called back and uh, went to work for Mr. Highland about a month later and, and worked there for six months. Then I did to Oklahoma City. Uh, I went to Oklahoma City doing the 89ers. They were the Phillies AAA team. I did that for two years, going back and forth, doing minor league baseball to uh, Jefferson City, working for Missouri Network when they got the rights back. Uh, Bob Costas went to NBC, so uh, basketball rights were open, and I did uh, football on TV for Missouri, and then went back to Oklahoma City one year, and then uh, went to Louisville for a couple of years when they were with the Cardinals. And Ricky Horton, my broadcast partner now, was pitching for the Louisville Redbirds at the time, and he was the opening day starter for the White Sox, my first game with the White Sox. The Cardinals had traded him to Chicago, part of the Jose De Leon deal. Uh, Lance Johnson also went over there. And uh, Ricky was the opening day starter. Now we're doing games uh, all 162 for the Cardinals together. Very cool. And, and you mentioned uh, you went to Oklahoma City, the 89ers, in 1980 uh, on to the Louisville Redbergs. Minor league broadcasting. Take me through it. I know what it's like as a player. It's different than the big leagues for everybody out there listening to the Boone podcast. Uh, not quite the same in the minor leagues, but but we're all there at one point. Uh, what was your relationship with, with the players? And give me a little peek into minor league broadcasting versus big leagues. Well, I learned a lot, and I learned very fast. In Oklahoma City, my first year, it was getting late in the season, really, really hot there in Oklahoma City. And I was doing the games basically by myself. Uh, some of the TV anchors helped me doing some play-by-play because they wanted to get involved on the home games. But I had to do all the road games, and I hadn't done anything like that in my career. Nothing that long, 133 or 136 game schedule it was in the American Association. And I mentioned to Cot Deal, our pitching coach, I mean, man, I am really tired. 
And he goes, you know, you didn't have to sign on. And that was a wake-up call right there. He's absolutely right. No, you don't have to sign on. As a, as a player or a broadcaster or a coach or a manager in this business, it, it demands so much time, so much energy, and so much dedication that uh, that kind of pushed me on, I think, to the next job in Louisville and to the next level. I uh, worked with uh, a great team that first year in Oklahoma City that had uh, Ryan Sandberg playing shortstop, and Bob Dernier was the center fielder. Well, those two moved on when Dallas Green took almost all of the Phillies' top minor league talent to the Cubs with him, and they had a great run there at Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago, but to be around those guys and uh, to get to learn from them, got uh, suckered into a couple of card games and and some of the guys on split contracts that made a little more money out of Philadelphia uh, got into my pocket a little bit, and I learned my lesson fast on that. But to broadcast every day and, uh, and make mistakes there that you don't want to make a mistake like that at the big league level, uh, that's what you work out in the minor leagues. And, and I've, I've noted that the players go through the very same thing. Roberto Hernandez was in the minor leagues for a long time with the Angels, and when he went to the Chicago White Sox, he blossomed as an all-star closer. But he said without all those innings in the minor leagues where he could be successful, fall on his face, make the mistakes, eliminate the mistakes, and get to the big leagues, he never would have made it with the Chicago White Sox. And uh, that uh, that did my heart good. Uh, Ramona Vilas was a good friend. He played at Oklahoma City, and he hit better in the majors than he did in the minors. And he always uh, looked at me, and he said, when somebody walks uh, two or three guys in an inning, somebody's got to pay. And that was Ramona Velas. Uh, I got to know a lot of a lot of guys, and then when I got to the big leagues, many of those guys were coming up to the majors at the time, and uh, that was very very helpful. Seeing Jim Leland managing uh, the uh, team at uh, Evansville, the Evansville Triplets, Mike Logga, the only guy to hit a ball out of Bush Stadium. It was a foul ball, but it went through one of those arches in Bush Stadium too, completely out of the park. He was playing first base for Evansville when I was doing the games in Oklahoma City and. And uh, Larry Rothschild was a pitcher for Evansville. Went on to become a, a really fine pitching coach and pretty good pitcher in his own right. Uh, just some of those guys. Watching Howard Johnson come along and become a major league star. And, and uh, it was it was very much uh, a learning experience, but uh, one that I term it was too much fun and not enough money. Definitely not enough money. And it, it, that's funny when you mentioned the card games and the split contract. Um, for those of you out, out there listening and don't know what a split contract is, a lot of these older uh, players in the minor leagues, they have one is the big league side and one is the minor league side. And it's usually a lot more than the rest of us. I remember, John, my first year in the minor leagues, uh, I made $850 a month. And there were some older guys that got sent down and they were making 80,000 on their split. And I was looking at them like, you're the richest man in the world. Why aren't you buying? Why aren't you buying the meals for everybody without really thinking this man's 27 years old? He's got a wife, three kids, (laughs) but I'm Mm -hmm. just I'm basing it on what I'm making. But uh, I understand what it's like for. And and when you talk about the money and and that card game, that's that's funny to me. Well, and it was interesting, A. Ray Smith, then he moved his team from Springfield, Illinois, to Louisville, and they really fixed up the fairgrounds park there. Now, the turf wasn't much fun to play on. That was like playing on the interstate just beyond the highway. 
but they had such a beautiful facility there, and they became the first minor league team to draw a million people my second year in 1983. And that was quite an experience because the Cardinals had some good teams there. And Jim Fergosi, who got the Phillies to the World Series, was managing down at AAA before uh, he moved on to the White Sox and then later Philadelphia. And I thought Jimmy did the best managing job of his life in Louisville as uh, they got a couple of players over. Uh, One was Ken Daly. They got him from Atlanta. And we were in a rain delay uh, before the start of a game in Omaha. And they're watching the Cub game. And Steve Trout picked off a guy at first base. And Daly, a left-hander, looks up from his card game. And he goes, you know, I wish I had a move like that. Fergosi walked by and he said, you're better. you got a much better move than that. Little things like that that he did to encourage his guys. And he learned pitching, something that he didn't uh, have a firm grip on when he managed the Angels when he got fired from that job. Uh, I think that really, really helped him. And when he got to Philadelphia, he was ready to take a team to the World Series, and I was so happy for him. Uh, Ricky Horton tells the story of being taken out of a game in Louisville by Fergosi, where Jim walked out there, and Ricky goes, why are you taking me out? Bad question. Handed the ball to him, went to the dugout. Fergosi ran to the dugout, chased Horton all the way up the ramp to the clubhouse, got in his face, and, and used every word imaginable to tell him, <clears throat> you're not showing me up like that anymore. No way. Don't do it. It isn't going to happen. I want the ball. You're out of the game. It's my decision. Fergosi turned, walked toward the door, turned and came back, gave him a kiss on the cheek and said, don't make me ever do that again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he didn't have to, <laughs> but it was a point well taken for Horton and a good one. Could you imagine him asking Whitey Herzog, why are you taking me out? That wouldn't have gone over well in St. Louis. Very cool. Um, moving on to the Minnesota Twins, first big first big league job. You end up winning a World Series there, in nineteen eighty seven. I believe Tom Kelly was the skipper. Tom was there. Yeah, I believe he was. He was his first year. Oh, okay. So you're there with Kelly and and that great bunch. You know, I came up when when these guys were kind of on their way out. It was when I first got to the big leagues, the Herbecks and Puckett and Gaetti and. Bly Levin, by old Bly Levin, who I grew up with, you know, he, he, he was a teammate of dad's in Anaheim. So uh, tell me about your time. First big league job you're with the Twins. You end up winning a World Series. Take me through that a little bit. Well, Brett, I think it was good that we were traveling commercially some at the time uh, because we got to hang out on delays at the airport. And uh, that's where I got to know Bert Bly Levin and Frank Viola and Tom Bernanski and Kirby Puckett. Uh, when I think of all those guys, I don't get many autographs and I don't save too much memorabilia, but if it means something to me, uh, then, then I, I would like to have an autograph. I have a ball autographed by the guys I really liked on that team that, uh, it, it's really starting to fade. Unfortunately, uh, I had even had them autograph in blue. So it would hold up for a good long time, but having Bernanski and Puckett and Herbeck and those guys on the ball, and uh, sitting around waiting to go to Anaheim, we had a delay going into uh, into uh, John Wayne Airport out of Minneapolis. And Bert was talking about very young, at a very young age, pitching to Willie Horton of the Detroit Tigers. He had uh, a uh, 3-0 count, and he throws his curveball, which was as good a curveball as you could ever imagine a pitcher to have. And it's right down the middle, and the umpire called it ball four. 
Bert looks in, you know, his palms to the sky, where was it? And Willie Horton goes, it can be a strike. And Bert goes, no, nah, Mr. Horton, you go ahead. You take first base. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> because Willie might have hit one 10 miles on the next pitch on three and one. <laughs> so Bert thought, you know, maybe it's better you go take the walk. It's all right. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, Bert knew the game, knew the people. He knew what was going on, and he knew how to pull a prank better than anybody. And uh, he could do that. In fact, the, the Twins, they uh, they won a couple of games against the A's at home, then went to Seattle to play the Mariners and lost on Friday night a close game. And the guys were kind of down on the bus going back to the hotel. And getting off the bus, Tom Kelly stops, and there's a chain reaction of people running into each other. And he said, hey, by the way, you outfielders get your rest. Bert's pitching tomorrow. Bert had given up 50 home runs the year before. <laughs> and broke everybody up, and uh, the Twins went on won the series. Yeah, Bert was great. We've, we've had him on the show, and, and uh, I, I told him this story. I was in the minor leagues, and Bert, I, I, they sent him down to uh, the affiliate of, of the Angels. This is, this is around 1992. I mean, he's right at the end of his career. He's getting one last round. I remember, you know how in the minor leagues you kind of catch, it's a big deal when a big leaguer, especially one uh, with the – with the track record that Bert Blylevin had, if he's down pitching, I mean, that's a big deal for the minor league guys. And I, you know, I had known Bert cause he was a teammate of dad's and you know, you're starting to hear the whispers that, well, word is if Bert pitches well today, he's going to go back to the big leagues and pitch with the angels. And if he doesn't, they're probably going to release him. And this is probably the last time he'll pitch. I end up coming up against Bert in a bases loaded situation, two outs. And it's maybe the only time in my life as a hitter because I was, you know, I was stingy. I wanted every base I could get. I wanted every hit. I wanted everything to fall. And I remember popping up to end the inning. Bert walks off the mound. And for the first time in my life, I was kind of okay with it because I'm Mm -hmm. thinking Bert just got through four or five innings, what they were looking for. And he's going back to the big league. Sure enough, after that game, he, he went up to the big leagues and, and finished his career. But uh, it, it was a weird story for me because I can't believe that I would ever think I don't want to knock, uh, beat somebody's brains in when I'm in the batter's box. And for the first time, I was okay with popping up when normally I'm like, oh, I just missed it. I want, you know, I want to hit one in the gap, couple ribbies. Uh, that was the first and only time uh, that it was okay that I popped up that particular bat only. <laughs> well, I can understand that because I watched you play a lot and I hated seeing you come up because of that. Because you're going to put the ball in play. You're going to do something. You might not get a hit, but you're, you're going to make it interesting. And uh, I had a situation in my career where before I did my first Final Four, I was asked to do the regional final in Lexington, Kentucky, between Kentucky and Illinois. And working with Jim Host on the NCAA radio network, he also owned the Kentucky rights, the radio rights. He had a rule. If your team is in the tournament, then you cannot be a part of the national radio broadcast. So Kaywood Ledford needed someone to hit, pinch hit for him. And I did the game Illinois-Kentucky. And if Dickie Beal had been called for traveling, which I think he traveled coming across midcourt, you and I would probably not be talking today because my career would have taken a whole different turn. Uh, Kentucky ended up winning that game, going to the Final Four. I did uh, Wake Forest and Houston in St. Louis in the Midwest Regional Final the next day. Then I did 
Houston against Virginia in my first Final Four in Seattle at the Kingdom, working with Kurt Gowdy. But if Dickie Beal had traveled, I wouldn't have been working with Kurt Gowdy. Kaywood Ledford would have been working there, and I may have never gone to CBS to do Game of the Week or moved on to do Major League Baseball. Who knows what would have happened? But thank goodness he wasn't called for traveling. The little things that shape our paths. It, it is. It's pretty <laughs> remarkable. And that no, that's obviously one for you. You think about it. It's like there are little things, you know, not just in broadcasting. In, in my baseball career, I think of little little passages in time where I think, wow, if that wouldn't have happened, would that have happened? But, but it's all interesting. And, and in the end you keep your nose down and you, and you go, it, it goes where it's supposed to go. Um, 1988, you're headed to the Chicago White Sox. Reinsdorf is there and, and you're going to do a little bulls too from 89 to 91, 91. Uh, uh, I believe the bulls win uh, win the championship. You're, you're there first, for those. Yes. You're, yeah, you're there for those those big Jordan years. Um, talk to me about going to Chicago. New new chapter in your life. Well, I um, I had asked uh, one of the other broadcasters in Minnesota if uh, you know we're going to the World Series. Now I worked radio and TV for the Twins, but only when the games were televised, and I was working primarily on the TV side. But asking the other broadcaster, would you mind if I did just one inning? I don't know if he thought I meant one inning a game. I just wanted one inning of play-by-play in a World Series game. Now, I'm not giving up any of my innings, and uh, the other guy's not giving up any of his. Well, that didn't go over very well with me, Brett. And um, I, um, I got a feeler from Chicago. Would you be interested in coming to the White Sox? And got a hold of my agent, and uh, we got things worked out. Got released in Minnesota and went to Chicago. That's how... Now that kind of worked out. I was only in Minnesota one year, and I thought if that's the way it's going to be, um, I, I don't really want to continue there. And it was a, a good move going to Chicago. And when the Cardinals won the World Series my first year in 06 with the Cardinals, Chris Carpenter at the uh, parade up on the stage in the in the ballpark afterward said, uh, you just show up and win championships? Uh, I said, it took 18 years in Chicago. But I had one in Minnesota, had the one with the White Sox, I was uh, there for three years as the Christmas help with the Bulls doing 30 games a year when they were on WGN. They simulcast other than those 30 games, but uh, they split them up for AM 1000 and for GN. So I, I got to do Bulls games and be around Michael Jordan and John Paxson and, and Scotty Pippen and Bill Cartwright. That, that was uh, great to be a part of that history. But uh, then I, I got to do uh, the White Sox in the World Series in 05 back-to-back with the Cardinals in 06, my first year with the Cardinals, and got back there in 2011 for a championship and then a National League uh, pennant winner, losing to the Red Sox in 2013. So I've been damn lucky to be around the right place at the right time, as Carpenter said. You just show up and win a championship. Well, I've been very lucky. feel like Forrest Gump in that regard. It is remarkable. I think you, you've won five championships, all told. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think that's the number. Um we had we had uh, Paul Canerco on recently. He reflected back on that 2005 World Series, uh, that championship, and it, it was so special because I mean they hadn't won since 1917. Uh, the Cubs had never won at that point. Um, was that extra special because just because of the laps and and that city hadn't seen a world uh, on the baseball side a world championship in so long. Well, it was very special for that reason, but it was also my last year 
and uh, they were trying to get me to take less money in my last year there in Chicago of 18 years, and I wasn't having it. Uh, I thought, no, that's that's not going to work out. Um, and I thought, well, maybe that's that's a good time to go. And that was all decided by September one, and we're still in a in a pennant race. And the riders were trying to make something out of it, having been there eighteen years. And I told them, no, this is about the ball club. This is definitely about the team doing something very special. When this is all said and done, I'll talk to you and tell you anything you want to know about this. But when it's all said and done, we'll talk about it. That's it. And I'm glad it worked out that way because I got to finish that year calling the division winner. I got to see A.J. Przinsky steal first base on a ball that he <laughs> thought was in the dirt and ran it out, and it wasn't in the dirt. Josh Ball caught it and just flipped the ball back to the mound. And if we had replay right now, the White Sox may not have won that World Series. The Angels may have won the, the American League pennant and moved on. Who knows? But uh, I got to call a lot of uh, great moments for the uh, the end of my time in Chicago that uh, turned out to be a world championship uh, for the White Sox. And Paul Canerco was definitely one of my favorite all-time players, right along with Mark Burley and Robin Ventura. And Frank Thomas, too. Yeah, Robin was one of my favorites. Uh, Jerry Manuel, Lamont, uh, Ozzie Guillen was was the man in charge when you won that World Series. I played with Ozzy. How was that? Because as an, as an announcer, as a broadcaster, you probably had a lot of times before the game, all right, got to go interview the skipper. How was it dealing sure. with Ozzy on a daily basis? He is, he's such a character. He was a character as a player. Uh, I never well, played for him, but uh, we were on that 99 Braves team together. Well, he loves the game, Brett, and he, uh, he did so much to get that team to the postseason, that team was starting to slide going to the last week of the season where it looked like uh, they may, may run into trouble trying to win the division. And he took all the pressure off the players and put it on him like any good manager will. And he got them through that. And then they just picked it up and ran with it uh, right on through. And he used his starting pitchers. The bullpen was hardly used at all in the league championship series. And El Duque uh, had a great moment in Boston where he got out of a bases-loaded jam and they went on to take care of Boston in the division series before going to the LCS. But I think they were able to perform because Ozzy put everything on his shoulders and, and drew all the media attention, and uh, he, knew, he knew exactly what uh, he had to do to uh, get his team across the finish line, at least with winning the division, and then having a chance to do what they ended up doing was, was amazing. But I'll give Kenny Williams a lot of credit because Kenny Williams, he, uh, he, Ozzie told him, I need this player, I need that. Kenny Williams went out to get him what he needed. And nobody saw Bobby Jinks coming. When Bobby Jinks came up from the minor leagues, going 101 miles an hour with his fastball and a breaking ball at about 93 or 94, uh, that was the difference maker. Because Shingo Takatsu wasn't getting anybody out as a closer early in the season. And Bobby Jenks uh, seemed to get just about everybody out. But uh, Ozzie managed all of that and did a terrific job. And it was a great run. And, and come to think of it, Pat Hughes and I are the only two local Chicago announcers to call the last out of a winning World Series in that town. So that's pretty special. And as you said, it was the the end of a long run for you. You're headed on to uh, the Cardinals. Kind of a mic drop for you, a little World Series call, 1917-2005. Uh, and you're headed to the Cardinals. It, was this a special place for you just because of your, your childhood and, and growing up in, in that part of the country? 
Oh, Brett, really special uh, because when we got to the World Series after Adam Wainwright struck out Carlos Beltran with that curveball at Shea Stadium in Game 7, and to get to Comerica Park to open up the series and Albert Pujols hits a home run and I got to call that, I could just imagine listening to home runs that were hit by Kenny Boyer, Tim McCarver, and Bill White that my dad and I listened to. And Mike Shannon hitting home runs as he homered in each World Series he played in 64, 67, and 68. And uh, those were the guys that uh, I loved to follow. And then being in that chair in front of the mic calling an Albert Pujols home run in Game 1 of the World Series in 2006, I just wish my dad had been alive to hear it. Uh, He he would have really loved that. But uh, it brought back a lot of of memories from listening to those Cardinal games over the years and, and the great things they've done and, and getting to see some of these guys come back for the reunions of, of those years. And Julian Javier just went into the Cardinals hall of fame. He was back a couple of weeks ago and Mike Shannon was there. So was Tim McCarver. And I know that meant uh, a lot to Julian Javier, but it meant a lot to us who grew up following, listening, watching, and enjoying what those players did. Yes, that was very special to go to St. Louis and be a part of that, and it's still very special to do that. I look at that Cardinals organization and top to bottom. I mean, you talk about the big franchises in, in baseball. Obviously, there's the Yankees, probably the probably the top, you know, maybe the top in all of sports. Uh, but I look on the on the National League side, and, and it really doesn't get more iconic than that St. Louis Cardinals, that St. That, that Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame with the names you see uh, top to bottom there. It's really an impressive list. The way they... The way they honor their players from the past, I, I think, is really a. I don't know. I think it's really a good thing. It's 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 great for the game of baseball. I think everybody should do it. You know, you go to Yankee Stadium, and, and up until recently, you could see a Yogi Berra, a, a Reggie Jackson, a Derek Jeter, and an Aaron Judge. I think that's awesome for the fans. And you go to St. Louis. There's something special about that city. There's something special about that organization. Um. I remember just coming there. There was something different about it. Those fans, they come, they're, 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 they are, everybody says they have the best fans in baseball. Cardinals might have the best fans in baseball. I remember rolling into St. Louis and my vivid memories are every time I get there, I know Mike Shannon and that raspy voice is going to, he's going to, uh, He's going to corral me in at some point. We're going to do an interview. He's going to give me a couple of gift certificates to go somewhere in the city. But I have, I have pretty fond memories. St. Louis Cardinals, that organization, the city, pretty special place for the game of baseball. Well, you make a diving play, Brett. You get up, throw a guy out at first base, they applaud you. It might have been the game-saving play, too, but Cardinal fans recognize and appreciate good, sound, quality baseball. And they always have. And that's what I hear from more visiting players, coaches, managers, that uh, they tell their, their young players coming in, when you come in here, if you, if you play well, they'll recognize you. And they'll, they'll know and they'll acknowledge what you did. And they do that to this day. And, and sometimes uh, the Cardinals catch a little grief about you know, the Cardinal way. Uh, a lot has been made about that. But it's the way they play the game. And George Kessel had a lot to do with that in helping develop players in the minor leagues and was on Whitey's coaching staff. And, and so many managers have um, credited George Kissel. Uh, Joe Torrey was a big George Kissel guy. 
and Joe uh, hired Bob Schaefer as a coach because Bob Schaefer was a George Kissel guy, and Schaefer coached for Tory out in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, that's that's all part of St. Louis, but you're talking about you know Dizzy Dean and and uh, the Gas House Gang and that bunch, and and then you know, the guys that uh, I got to know, Stan Musial and Red Shandeast and and Terry Moore. Terry Moore was a fine fine center fielder. Uh, I did a dinner in Sykeston, Missouri in 1980 with Terry Moore and Enos Slaughter. And Enos was so upset he wasn't in the Hall of Fame at that point. Well, if they call me, I'm going to tell them blank, 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 and they, this, uh, they can just tell them where to shove it. And, and Terry's there now, Enos, it'll be all right. And as it turned out, it was just fine. Enos made it into the Hall of Fame. He was a longtime college coach as well. But uh, Cardinal baseball runs pretty deep uh, throughout the country, and and uh, you know, just having Stan there at the top, and and what Albert has been doing with uh, the records, it was it was Stan the man and Albert for many many years, and then Albert went on to the Angels and played with the Dodgers before coming back this year. But the way the fans have embraced Albert Pujols, that's the way they embrace great baseball players in St. Louis, and uh, they are so happy to have him back. And this is as happy as I've ever seen Albert Pujols just uh, living in the moment here in St. Louis playing baseball for the Cardinals. 2006 World Series champs that's under Tony La Russa. In 11, you'll win again, I believe, under Mike Matheny. That uh, was under La Russa in 11. Oh, it was under La Russa. Okay, Matheny comes year. after that. So La Russa wins in 06 and 11. Uh Pardon me on that one. In, in 2013, uh, you lost to the Red Sox. I want to talk about um, your national work. I want to talk about the NFL, college football, basketball, the Final Four. Um, do you enjoy those as much as the game of baseball? I really enjoy the basketball because that's something to do in the wintertime until I can get to spring training. And I've been so fortunate to be able to do television in the Big Ten Conference for their regional network and to work uh, Conference USA when that was a great basketball conference with Louisville and Cincinnati, and they had Marquette. Uh, Dwayne Wade uh, played in that uh, conference before all of that broke up and, and then got Marquette to the Final Four. But being involved with those leagues and getting to do anywhere from five to ten games in the regular season, do the conference tournament, the, the qualifier, the winner of the tournament qualifies uh, for the automatic bid for the NCAA. And then I did 19 NCAA tournaments on the NCAA CBS radio network, including 10 championships after Kay Wood Ledford retired. Marty Brenneman of the Reds did one game on Saturday, and I did uh, the other game, and then I did the championship. And I had one weekend where I'm doing the Kentucky-UMass game at the Meadowlands on Saturday, got on a plane Saturday night, flew to Seattle, did the opening game of the White Sox and the, the Mariners, and it went to, to a 10th inning, and the Mariners won in 10. And I was walking out the door when the game ended on a home run. I think Tino Martinez ended the game with a home run. And I was walking out the door to catch the red eye back to New York because I had to do the championship game on Monday night and then leave the next morning and get back for uh, the game uh, we were off Monday in baseball, so I did the game Tuesday, back and forth across the country. But that was fun. I wanted to see if I could do it. I was sick as a dog after that. Uh, I had a bad head cold, but I, I enjoyed the assignment and the fact that I, I went cross-country a couple of times to uh, do basketball and baseball. That was a fun weekend and got to see some great games in the process. But I, I love doing the basketball. The football, um, 
I did that to help put the kids through school, and I, I didn't quite enjoy that as much because I, I didn't grow up with football the way I did baseball and, and following basketball. But I had some great partners to work with that made, made it very, very easy. Uh, John Dockery was one of my favorites as John played on that team with Joe Namath that won the Super Bowl with the Jets. And uh, Doc was as well prepared as any announcer I've ever worked with, much the way Ricky Horton prepares for baseball. Doc might be reading newspapers right up to opening kickoff, just trying to find some other nugget of information, even though he had stacks and stacks of of information uh, that uh, he just filed away in his mind for the game. He, he was never prepared well enough for a game. But uh, I just said, hey, you can probably put the paper away, Doc. You're going to do just fine. And he always did. And worked with Matt Millen, worked a lot with Hank Stram. Got to fill in for Jack Buck on some Monday night football games. And uh, got to work with Jack and Hank on a football show the two years that NBC had the Monday night rights uh, taking the radio away from CBS before the uh, CBS radio got it back. Uh, got to work with a lot of great people. And on the game of the week, I mean, it was a who's who they had uh, bringing the game of the week back in 1985 for the first time in 25 years on radio. I worked with Brent Musburger, and the first game was Memorial Day weekend at uh, Shea Stadium, the Dodgers with Fernando Valenzuela against the Mets, Dwight Gooden. That's a great game to start the game of the week again. And I worked with Johnny Bench the next weekend in Seattle, worked with Kirk Gowdy, worked with uh, Ernie Harwell, Bill White, the great Jerry Coleman. I absolutely loved working with Jerry Coleman, and we were the first Sunday night uh, radio baseball crew when ESPN started up their Sunday night baseball. Uh, that was a who's who working with those guys, and I learned something from all of them. Jerry Coleman. I, I remember it, man. They can hang a star on that one. That's Coleman. Or slides into second with a stand-up double. And, yeah. You know, that, I mean, Jerry Jerry was so funny. We were finishing uh, a Sunday night game, getting up 5 in the morning in Toronto. Uh, he's going back to join the Padres. I'm going back to join the White Sox. He's reading the, the Toronto Sun, and he looks up. And he said, this is the worst paper in the whole United States. And we're in Toronto. That's Jerry. That's just the way he was. But he would do anything in the world for you. He was great when it came to his play-by-play calls. And he was a, a Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster, but he was also in the Marine Hall of Fame as he was uh, one tremendous fighter pilot in the service. And I think he was uh, probably more proud of that than anything, and he should have been. Yeah, I remember when I'd come to play the Padres, because Jerry and my grandfather were pretty close. So I'd always make it a point when I when I came to San Diego, because not all, always do we come see you guys that are broadcasting the game when we're in town. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do an interview, but uh, – my grandpa would always say, hey, make sure you go say hi to Jerry. And, and I made a point of it every time I came into town. Um, that, 99, that 1989, uh, the Bay Bridge series, when the earthquake hit, we've had a lot of guys on the podcast uh, that were there. I know you were there, I believe, covering it with CBS. And right. I love getting the takes uh, of, of what it was like. Had to be surreal. Uh, I remember watching it on TV. Uh, what was your experience like in, the, in that 89 series? Well, it happened just before my pre-recorded pre-game was going on. I did pre and post on the World Series, and Jack Buck and Johnny Bench were doing the play-by-play. And it uh, stopped. The earthquake stopped. There was almost like the fans started cheering at that point, but uh, the lights were out. A lot of the electricity happened to be out in the ballpark. And uh, we, we still had power uh, in the booth for a little bit, <clears throat> but we still had a phone line that was up. 
with the studio in New York. We were hooked into the police trunk of phone lines because they ran out of phone lines uh, for everybody to accommodate writers and broadcasters covering the World Series. But when the earthquake hit, uh, they went ahead and started the pregame. And I'm trying to tell the producer in New York, look, this is like, uh, you know, typhoon, uh, you know, tornado. Uh, it may be worse. We, we don't know what's going on. We need to have you cut off this pre-recorded uh, pregame and, and plug in the uh, phone. And I, and that was a studio. I worked to do sports central USA, Brett, the uh, old Win Elliott update shows on weekends. So I kind of helped them and, and the engineer got in to patch in the phone and we took it out of the first break of the pregame. And I passed the phone around with Johnny bench and Jack Buck and, and Jack Buck, who always had the great one-liners, he goes, Johnny bench. I saw you run out of the booth. And if you had run that fast, when you played, you never would have hit into a double play. And I don't know about you, John Rooney, but I thought my socks were on too tight. I mean, trying to trying to make light of something while we were piecing information together. And I just uh, had purchased a uh, a cassette uh, AM FM uh, portable player down on the wharf the day before, and I'm listening to the CBS own station in town, listening to uh, uh, the uh, the Bay Bridge had been affected and 880 had collapsed, and I knew we weren't going to have baseball at that point. And uh, I stayed in the Bay Area the whole time until uh, play resumed. And uh, that was uh, an experience I'll never forget. And I was in New York on 9-11, too. Uh, White Sox uh, had a wraparound Monday game in Cleveland and then flew into New York. We got there about 4 in the morning. And I remember flying into Newark, uh, flying over the Statue of Liberty and thinking, man, that's a beautiful sight uh, down there. And and uh, my wife woke me up the next morning saying they bombed the World Trade Center. And I said, well, that's been done before. She goes, not like this. And then I lost the connection with the cell phone, turned the TV on, and there's a plane flying into the second tower. And and hearing people running down 42nd Street away from Grand Central Station after a bomb threat, uh, just being a part of that. You, if you don't think baseball intersects with history, uh, it, that that's a very sobering moment. Those are moments to uh, just sit back and take into consideration. Wow. So you were there. Man, I, I remember we came there shortly after, and, and uh, I got a chance to go down to, to Ground Zero and, and walk the, the site. I mean, it was still, like, bubbling. Uh, but you were there the day uh, – how far – where were you staying? How far were you from, from we the We were tower? on 42nd Street at the Grand Hyatt. So we were okay. Yeah, we're, we're a lot. That's pretty much where everybody at that time, that's where everybody stayed. You go to New York, stay at the Grand Hyatt. Right. Yeah. And I, I started walking down that direction and saw people covered in, in soot, um, walking, trying to find some way to get off Manhattan to go home. Everything had been shut down at that point. We bust out the next morning and bust all the way back to Chicago. We were the first people off Manhattan. And we had some nurses that we took across the GW Bridge to drop them off at their cars as they had been working nonstop. And a car was following uh, the two buses in New Jersey, and the highway patrol pulled this guy over. He said, I saw two buses going at a nice speed. I thought I'd get behind them and follow them. But they didn't know. They were, they were very cautious about everything, uh, the law enforcement and all. But that was um, just an un- unbelievable moment in our nation's history. And when we went back to play the Yankees, uh, we took some b- balls and bats. Uh, Ed Farmer was my partner on radio, and 
we uh, we got some caps and and took them down for the the first responders that were still working and and you could uh, the the smell was uh, something I'll never forget. Oh wow! What yeah? What a man that brings me back right now. We were in Anaheim, and uh, you know I talked to a lot of the guys on uh, the Yankee teams and the Mets team. Guys would come on the program. We talk about that. It's 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 remarkable and and see it i remember you know it comes up time to time they have that that video clip of bush throwing out that first pitch and he throws a strike and the piazza we had on recently him hitting the home run those bring back those memories of what a, what a time that, Brett, what a time the country needed baseball it really did and I, I remember having the the conversations as you know as we all did organization by organization player by player uh what do you think we should do you know and and uh, the overwhelming obviously we ended up playing but but i pretty much all the players say hey we don't we don't want to just sit here we we want to help with the with the uh you know, get through the morning. We want to, we want to help with the process. And I think going out there and playing gives people some relief. And uh, we felt that that was in the best interest of, of, of baseball, best interest, best interest of our country. Um, you know, I was on a pretty good team that year and it didn't end up working out for us, worked out for the diamondbacks that year, but you're right. History yeah. has a, has a crazy way of uh, interweaving with baseball. Um, and, and definitely that was a huge moment. Uh, recently, um, you got inducted in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, getting that call, thoughts? Well, uh, I went in 2004 in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame, and then last year I went into the Missouri Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. And when I got both calls, uh, Brett, uh, the, the state means so much to me. Uh, having followed and, and broadcast the Missouri Tigers and football and basketball and I was just a huge fan of Norm Stewart and his basketball program and getting to do those games. And I was the first sports director at Missouri Network. And now uh, Clyde Lear and Derry Brownfield, who started the Missouri Network and uh, Brownfield Network, the farm broadcasting uh, network, uh, they're in the Missouri Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. And Bob Pretty, the news director, is in there. And I was the first sports director. So we have kind of the four originals that uh, happened to be on board uh, right around the first couple of years of the network in the uh, in Missouri Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. And they had a great night, but to uh, consider that uh, Bob Hyland is in there, Jack Buck and Harry Carey. Uh, they have uh, Jay Randolph in there. Uh, Jay did the Cardinals for many years, and he did a, all that great coverage on NBC. He was the guy with that big check at the 18th hole for the golf coverage. I asked how, how, how big a car he had to have to carry all those around each week. And I think that's why the golfers loved him so much, because he had the payday at the end of the, the tournament. But he's in the Missouri Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. Uh, Rush Limbaugh is in there. So Rush uh, grew up in southeast Missouri. And to be in that group, to grow up in this state and be a broadcaster, um, I, I, I couldn't get through my speeches, Brett. I choked up, especially when I thought about my dad and I listening to Cardinal games in the car. Uh, that did me in, but uh, I was able to pick it up and uh, finish up and do a Harry Carey impersonation and um, and and then uh, wrap it up and enjoy the moment. And now I'm on the uh, Hall of Fame committee for the Missouri Broadcasters Association. Um, I'm kind of a, a member who uh, suggests uh, future inductees and 
and we're going to get uh, all the great broadcasters in Missouri recognized. That's important. Uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame is important to recognize all the great players of the game. The same with the Football Hall of Fame in Ohio and, and any of those. And in Springfield with the basketball and in Kansas City with the college basketball Hall of Fame, uh, all of that. Uh, it's to remind those coming along of the greats who participated and uh, set the table for the great players who are playing now. I'm going to do a quick little rapid fire with you. And uh, some, some of my favorite guys, just what comes to mind when I mention their name? Harry Callis. I enjoyed listening to Harry Callis doing the Phillies all those years. It always kind of dawned on me, foul ball behind the plate. Oh, the game's over because it took me too long to say foul ball. I mean, I I loved his style. And as nice a man as you ever want to meet. And uh, and jealous of that great voice, of course. Uh, But he, he loved baseball. He was the voice, uh, the, the soundtrack for football with the uh, NFL films for so many years. But he was as nice a man as he was a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Jack Buck. Jack Buck, to me, was the perfect baseball announcer with his pacing, his sense of humor, his voice, and what he did for the St. Louis community, uh, what he did for the people here. He did everything on KMOX, from talk shows to uh, news to sports, and then the great play-by-play with the Cardinals. Uh, he, he was St. Louis baseball for many, many years. Harry Carey? Harry Carey, uh, the guys that we, we've talked about so far, Harry Callis, Jack Buck, you can throw Vince Scully in there, right along with Ernie Harwell. I don't think they were ever, uh, they never put themselves ahead of the game. But Harry, I thought, was bigger than the game. He was bigger than life at times. You know, six of my best friends just walked in the booth, and they're all named Bud. <laughs> um, I mean, Harry Harry was Harry, and uh, I, I really loved being around Harry, and, and he was very good to me. I, I didn't have a, a close relationship with him. But having grown up listening to Harry and listening to Jack and the differences in styles, uh, but but Harry, um, he, he, he could say it was a – a uh, fly ball caught at the wall, and the second baseman happened to catch it. But that changed after uh, more games were televised. But he made it exciting, and I think that's why KMOX is such a powerhouse because you could hear it in 39 states at nighttime, and you didn't have any baseball really to the south until the uh, Colt 45s in Houston or uh, Milwaukee moved down to Atlanta. David Niehaus. My, oh, my, oh, my. He had a joke every time I came into the booth, and it was always a grand slam of a joke. And I, I just missed uh, going into the booth uh, with, with Dave Niehaus because I love Dave Niehaus and Rick Riz, uh, two of my favorite people and really, really good broadcasters. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to stand behind him while he's talking about the grand salami one more time. Uh, I miss Dave. He was great. You know, the years I was in Seattle with, with David, uh, yeah, one of the, one of the, he was a pleasure and he, he was, he was fun. And he is missed. Uh, you got a John Miller story for me, something about an impersonation. Well, John walked in the booth one day in uh, Baltimore. He's doing the Orioles. We were going on the air Orioles and white Sox. Ed Farmer handed him the microphone and said, talk. So he breaks into his Vince Gully 
Well, welcome to Camden Yards, as today we have the Orioles and the White Sox. And so I break into Harry. Oh, Vinny, come on. Waxing poetically here at Cramden Yards. What are you trying to do? There's a baseball <laughs> game here. We're not into literature or theater. And we went on and on for like five minutes and almost missed the first pitch. So that Sunday, he had to do a Cubs game on Sunday night baseball. And Harry's coming over to join them. So Harry comes in there and, well, well, you know, Harry, good to have you with us here. Hey, I got John, I got a bone to pick with you. Uh, what's that, Harry? Well, um, when you listen to me, do I sound inebriated to you? Harry heard the exchange, I guess, while he was driving to the ballpark. <laughs> and I don't know if he was too, I thought Miller was doing both voices. So Miller calls me up. Hey, you got me in trouble. We can't do that again. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, by the way, Harry, you do sound inebriated, but that's what makes you you. Uh, before I before I let you out of here, we lost uh, one of the greats. You've mentioned him time to time throughout throughout our conversation. We lost one of the greats recently. Uh, maybe you know, considered by a lot by a lot of people, the greatest of all time. In Vin Scully, uh, just touch on Vin a little bit. The first time I met Vin, Brett, I was doing um, a game in Anaheim for CBS Radio in 1985, and Norman Bear was our producer, and Norman lived in Los Angeles. And he picked me up uh, at the airport, and we uh, drove to Anaheim, and Vin was staying at the Marriott as Vin and Joe Gargiola were doing the game for NBC. And across a crowded lobby, that lobby was big, but it was packed. They had some convention going on there, as they always did in Anaheim. Vin comes running all the way across and said, Hello, I'm you know Vin Scully. It's a pleasure to meet you. Norman's told me a lot about you, and I want to wish you all the best at CBS Radio. How many do that, Brett? How, I mean, this, this is one of the greats of all time back in 1985, let alone what he, he was able to add on to his great career uh, up until just a few years ago when he retired. But I got to work some World Series games with Ben Scully, and uh, Ben worked with Johnny Bench for a short time, and and then uh, Jeff Torborg. I think he did the last three or four with Jeff Torborg, the last being in 1997 when the Marlins beat uh, Cleveland. But Ben Scully was uh, again there's like Harry Callis, a a great great broadcaster, but an enormous human being. I mean, just one of the greatest of all time. And, yes, I miss him. Uh, the last time I talked to Ben, I, I talked to him when Red Shandings died. And he said, yeah, and, and, then, and I read, here, here's where I crossed paths with Red. I guess Ben had to go to Milwaukee separately from the team. He arrives at the airport in Milwaukee, gets in a cab, and the cab driver looks at him and says, oh, my goodness. Oh, it's such an honor to have you in my cab, Mr. Shandings. He, he mistook Ben for red shandings with the red hair. So Ben uh, gave him a little extra tip, and he said, uh, yeah, I told told Red later on that uh, you owe me for that one because I wasn't going to shortchange the guy and embarrass you. But Ben uh, and Red, I got a picture of them in our booth together the last time Ben was in St. Louis, and uh, that's one of my favorite photos I have on my phone. Well, John Rooney, I appreciate you coming on the program. This has been a lot of fun. My opinion, future Hall of Fame broadcaster, John Rooney, but it's it's really been an honor. And what we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, we kick it to the voice of the podcast. 
And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan. That was a heck of a podcast, fellas. Nice job. <laughs> John, thank you very much. <laughs> you got it, Brett. Hey, and, uh, you know, thank, thanks to your family because it, it, you guys brought a lot of uh, enjoyment to me watching baseball over the years. But uh, I, I feel like it was yesterday that I saw that ball pop out of your dad's mitt and Rose catch it over there. On the uh, it's unbelievable. Down. I love it every time I see it because, you know, we, we talk all the time. It's like some of my greatest memories are, are from my childhood. And I had such a unique childhood. You know, you don't know it when you're going through it. But right. uh, I look back still, some of my favorite times is 1980, 1979, going to, the, going to the ballpark with dad before the game. You know, those are some, you know, and I had a lot of memories as a player, but sometimes you go back to your childhood and that's why I kept mentioning, you know, by, you said by some, I'm like, by some, yeah. I remember just listening every night on the radio when I was five years old. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast. EP executive producer Rich Herrera Digital All gets uploaded by Liz Landry Do us a favor, share the Moon Podcast Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports Make sure you subscribe Never miss an episode And while you're at it, give us a 5 star rating And share your feelings about the podcast By leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show For all of us here on the Moon Podcast He is Brett Boone You can find him on social media At the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.